Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. If you were paying attention during the scripture reading, this story should sound kind of familiar to you, right? Like you're thinking, didn't we already read a story like this in the Gospel of Mark? Didn't we, didn't we already read about Jesus feeding of, like thousands of people in Mark chapter 6? And you're probably getting a sense of deja vu, right? Are you guys familiar with that phenomenon called deja vu? It's when you get this strange feeling that what, uh, whatever it is that you're experiencing right now has already happened before, that you're sort of like reliving it. You guys familiar with that phenomenon called deja vu? It's when you have this strange feeling that whatever you're experiencing right now has already happened before. You're sort of reliving it. <laughs> but seriously, like this passage that we just read here in Mark chapter 8 seems to echo the one that we found at, at, at Mark chapter 6. In both accounts, Jesus is feeding thousands of people who've come out to hear him preach. In both accounts, Jesus has compassion on these people when they get hungry. And in both accounts, that compassion compels him to feed them by miraculously multiplying a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And so we see similar events, similar themes, but we still have all around new lessons to learn from this morning's passage in, in Mark chapter 8. And so I'm going to walk you through three points this morning. First, we're going to look at the hunger of our souls. Secondly, we're going to look at the heart problem of unbelief. And thirdly, and lastly, we're going to look at the hope that Jesus ultimately brings. So let's consider that first one, the hunger of our souls. Uh, let's dive in starting at uh, verse 1 and read to verse 3. It says, In those days, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he, Jesus, called his disciples to himself and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come even from far away. So here's sort of the backdrop. Jesus is here at this point. He's kind of at a turning point in his ministry at this point. You know, up through chapter 7 of Gospel of Mark, 
Jesus has been on sort of the Jewish side of the lake. That's where he's been doing his ministry uh, all up through chapter 7. And now he's just, in, in the last chapter, he's entered what we call the Gentile territory or the non-Jewish area. And so what's happened is word about this great Jewish teacher named Jesus is spreading throughout the region. People are piling in droves by the thousand, uh, hungry and thirsty for his teaching. Many are traveling from far edges of the region. And so these people, they're, they're hanging on his every word. They've come to hear him teach. They're hanging on his every word. And they've been sitting there for a few days. And now they've run out of food to eat. And because many of them have a long journey back home, a lot of them run the risk of of, of passing out on the way home. And so that's the backdrop. And at this point, Jesus, he sees this. And he doesn't want any harm to come to them. He doesn't want anyone passing out. And so it says in verse 2 that he has compassion for them. He has compassion. Now that, that word compassion is this Greek word splagnon, which literally means like from the bowels, from his gut. And so when we read that word compassion in verse 2, it tells us that, that this is sort of a gut-wrenching sort of like heartache sort of compassion. He was moved from the deepest part of his soul for them. And look at uh, verse 4, when his, how his res- disciples respond to him. It says, they answered Jesus. When, when, when Jesus says that he has compassion for them and he doesn't want to send them home hungry, his disciples answer him in verse 4. And they say, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? You see, they're out in the desert. They're out in the desolate place in the middle of nowhere. There's no Trader Joe's or Amazon Fresh. There's no drive through or food court. When I was going over my, this part of my notes with my wife yesterday, she was like, oh, that sounds awful. <laughs> right? So the disciples here, there's like nothing, there's nothing around. It's a desolate place, and the disciples ask, where are we going to get food? Which, if you've been here since we started this series through the Gospel of Mark, that question should make you go like, really? <laughs> like, really? Like, how many times has Jesus demonstrated his power thus far? That how many times has he demonstrated his power and that he's willing and able to provide? They should have said, Jesus, we've seen you at work before. We've seen how you worked in a situation just like this, and we know that you can do that again. But instead they ask, how can one person feed so many? And they ask this question because yet again they are caught off guard. They're unprepared for this dilemma in front of them. The question to consider this morning is, is, is like, when has that been you? When has that been you? Where in your life are you caught off guard? And because you're caught off guard, you start to worry. You start to get anxious. You've seen in your life how God is in control, how he provides, how he's there for you, but then something in life catches you off guard and you start to get anxious. You start to forget you've forgotten about the power and the presence of Christ. That's what's happening with these disciples right here. Now read on in verse 5. It says that he, Jesus, asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. 
And then he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took those seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave thanks to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. Verse 7, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they, everyone, ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And then he sent them away. And so this is sort of our deja vu moment, right? This is our deja vu moment where we see that the compassion of Jesus causes him to feel, to feel pain for them. And that's what compassion does. That's what, that's what biblical compassion does. It's a, it's a sort of empathy, a sort of sympathy that leads to action. It's this sense of deep-seated hurt or pain for the vulnerable, for the voiceless, for the helpless that, that compels you, that moves you to, 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 to care for them. That's what happens to Jesus right here. He has compassion, and it compels him to then, to then feed the crowd. And the difference between this feeding here in Mark chapter 6 and the one, or sorry, Mark chapter 8, and the one that we saw earlier in chapter 6 a few weeks ago is that is that, that, that first feeding was for 5,000 men in the Jewish region. But here, he's feeding 4,000 people, 4,000 Gentiles. Now, the number's not as important as the fact that they're Gentiles. Here, he's feeding 4,000 Gentiles. That means non-Jewish people like, like most of us in this room. And that's actually why there are seven loaves in the beginning and seven baskets left over after. Now, why does that matter? What is the deal with this number seven? Why does that number seven matter? It's because in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew scriptures, that number seven is significant. It's a significant symbolic number for the Gentiles. We read about this in Deuteronomy and, in, and in, even earlier in Genesis. You've got seven tribes of Gentiles listed. You see the Karenites, the Perizzites, it goes on and on until there's like seven total. And so Mark here, when he talks about the seven loaves and the seven baskets left over, Mark is making a significant point. He's saying Jesus is not just the Messiah, the Savior King for Israel, but he's the Messiah for the whole world. You see, the Pharisees of the first century, they treated Christianity as a Jewish religion. And the same way that some Christians in the U.S. today treat Christianity as a primarily American religion. But Mark here, he's making a point that Jesus' salvation, his power, his healing, his message and work of redemption is not just for the Jews, but also for the non-Jews, for the Gentiles. It's not just for the insiders, but it's for everyone. It's not just for those in the Near East, but it's also for those in the Far East, in India and in China, down through Africa, eventually up through Europe, across the pond, into the islands, and over to the Americas, even the Canadians. <laughs> it's not just for those in the first century, it's also for those in the 21st century, for you. And for me, and for our neighbors, and for the world. You see, maybe you're here this morning thinking, like, Jesus wouldn't have anything to do with me. Because I didn't grow up in church, or I left church a long time ago. But this passage reminds us that Jesus came for everyone. 
He came for both the religious and the irreligious. His spirit draws all kinds of people. You know what compelled these religious outsiders with no background to like Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob? They had no background to the God of Moses. You know what compelled them to sit at Jesus' feet for a few days? Look at the last verse of of, of chapter 7, which we read last week. Here's why they were compelled to sit at Jesus' feet. It says that they were astonished beyond measure, saying that he has done all things well. They're amazed at him. They're amazed at his words. They're amazed at his work. Their hunger for Jesus outgrew their hunger for food. So they left their comforts and the safety of their homes. They sat in the desert, the desolate place for a few days just to sit at his feet. Mark is showing us here that at our core, at our core, whether we all know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, at our core, we all hunger and yearn for Jesus. Colossians 1 tells us that all things, including uh, all people, you and me, all things were created by him, by Jesus, and for him. What that means is that you and I were never meant to be apart from him. We were never meant to be separated in a relationship with him, which is what our sin nature has done. He's the one that your soul longs for. He's the one that you are meant to spend eternity with. We tend to have what I call like these these if-only statements. These if-only statements. So that'd be like a, a statement like, if only I had a different job, then my life would feel complete. If only I wasn't single, then my life would be whole. If only I had this much money in my bank account or my investment account. If only my kids weren't so disrespectful. If only I had one more drink tonight. If only my sexual desires were met, then I'll feel satisfied. Or another way we can phrase these questions is, is, or or look at that, is, is, is what is it that you turn to when you're feeling like, like Jesus just isn't enough? What is it that you turn to when you feel like Jesus is not satisfying? Whatever your answer is to that question, that is the thing that you are hungering for. In other words, that is what you worship. We could say that is your functional savior. This passage tells us, Jesus is reminding us, he's saying, I created you. Jesus is saying, I created you. And because I created you, your soul will resonate most with me, not with these other things. And unless we get that, we will never be truly satisfied. We'll always be exhausted, always be frustrated, always peeved, always hungry and dissatisfied. Which begs the question for us this morning, like if we, if we know that with our heads, then why is it that we keep feeding ourselves junk food spiritually? And the answer we find in our, in our, in our second point, which is the heart problem of unbelief. The heart problem of unbelief. Look, there's a, there's a twist here in the story, and it begins in verse 10. 
says that immediately at this point, Jesus got into the boat with his disciples and he went to the district of Dalmanutha, which is back in Israel. So he left the Gentile region. He's back in Israel. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and they began to to, to argue with him. Now, and really quick, that word came, when it says that Pharisees came, that's actually originally a military term in the Greek. It's a military term that you would use when like an army would come out to, to war with, to wage war with another nation. So that's the sense here, is that these, these Pharisees are almost like an army that come to wage war uh, with Jesus. They came and they began to argue with him, to challenge him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Which, if you think about it, is pretty ridiculous, right? Considering that's exactly what Jesus just did. And that's exactly what he's been doing since these Pharisees first encountered him back in Mark chapter 2. And here's what you need to understand about miracles. Miracles, every, every single miracle is a sign that tells us who Jesus is and what is it that he came to bring. It's, it's like... The samples that you, 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 you get in, in the back of Costco, right? My daughter calls Costco Snackland because you just go up to the table and you pick up like all the, how many snacks that you want, right? Those samples, they're foretaste of a real meal. Jesus' miracles are like that. They are signposts, foretaste of what's to come. These miracles reveal who he is, that he's the God who is renewing people and things. He's the God who's making all things new. He's the God who will one day restore all things from sin's corruption. The Pharisees, this group of religious elites, they didn't recognize his signs. That's because they're looking for a different sign. They, they called it a sign from heaven. The reason they called it that is because they didn't believe that Jesus came from there. They didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God. They didn't believe that he was who he said he was. They didn't believe he was the Messiah, the savior king. You see, they wanted in their minds, they wanted the Messiah to come in their mold and on their terms. They wanted somebody that had heavenly powers, but that fit nicely into their earthly program. The problem with their hearts is that they have this posture of unbelief. That's the problem with their hearts is they don't believe he is who he says he is. It's a heart problem of unbelief. And that breaks Jesus' own heart. Look at verse 12 with me. It says he sighed, Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. Vivid language there. It means that you know, he was torn up, he was sad, he was in despair. And then he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them into the boat again and went to the other side. You can just picture Jesus like in, in his mind, in his heart. He's just like, are you kidding me? They don't get it. And he's just like, I'm out. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving this. Like, like I'm, 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 I'm over these guys. He's saying that their belief has hardened their hearts from seeing who he actually is. And to be clear, there's a difference between unbelief, like these Pharisees, and doubt, which is what some of us in this room kind of struggle with. 
There's a difference between unbelief and doubt. You see, some of you are struggling with, with, with doubt. And if, and if that's you, if you're like a skeptic here where you're coming curious, but you have these honest questions about who God is. You have honest questions about Jesus and Christianity, who he is and why he matters. Like, we just want you to know that you're, you're welcome in a place like this. And we actually think that's brave of you. We applaud you for that. Because it's a brave thing to come to a place like this and check out a, a community like ours to explore who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And when we started this church, I mean, we're a brand new church. We just launched at the, at the end of last year, like this December. We, we wanted this to be a place that, that, that where anyone, regardless of where they're at on the faith spectrum, could feel safe to come with their honest questions about who Jesus is, even with their doubts. But doubt, truly defined, is really just a search struggle for what is true. Doubt is a search struggle for what is true about Jesus. But unbelief, unbelief, like the Pharisees here, is an altogether different kind of thing. It's an altogether different sort of animal. It's a hard-heartedness against God. It's this idea that God needs to come to you on your terms. That he needs to come to give you the sign that you want. And we see this everywhere, don't we? Like in our rebellious sin nature, like we are prone to reject God on the sheer fact that he's not who we want him to be. He doesn't look the way we want him to look. Sometimes when I'm talking to like some of my more skeptic friends, like they'll say things like, you know, I just don't think I could believe in a God who allows suffering and evil to exist. On the one hand, it's like, I, I get that. I get that. Like, that's an honest question to wrestle with. That's a, good, that's a good question to wrestle with. How can we say that God is good and there be suffering in the world? And there are real and satisfying answers in the scriptures, which I don't have time to get into, but, but we need to understand that at the end of the day, like, your preferences don't bear weight or hold any sway on who God really is. And sometimes my skeptic friends will say things like, you know, I, I just don't think I can believe in a God who judges people. That's, a, that's an honest thing to say, but at the end of the day, like, your preferences don't bear weight or, or, or hold any sway on the God who really is. Like, you can't take something like the nature of God, the God who made you, and say things like, I don't like that you're this way, you need to be that way, right? Like, show me this sign, do this thing. I don't, I don't want that sign. Show me this sign. Then I'll believe who you say you are. You see, that's the hard-heartedness of unbelief, and that's what these Pharisees were doing. But I need you to understand, this message isn't just about the unbelieving Pharisees. It's about that, that, that heart posture of unbelief that can show up in all of us, even in those who are followers of Jesus too. We see that that heart posture shows up in some form, maybe to a lesser degree, but in some form, even in the disciples. Read about it in verse 14 with me. It says, now they, the disciples, they, forgot, they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat, which is pretty hilarious if you think about it, because you'd think that if you had like seven baskets full of miracle bread, <laughs> you'd probably bring more than one loaf in the boat with you. Verse 15, it says that he, Jesus, cautioned them, and he said, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of the bread, or sorry, of the leaven of Herod. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, what does that mean? What is Jesus saying here? 
leaven, like it was like yeast. Leaven was basically this, this, this sort of yeast that you had to use by a certain time or else it would go bad and infect all your future batches of bread. And so for that reason, it was used as, as this, this leaven is always used as a symbol of evil and sin all throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Leaven, like sin, can be subtle, but eventually it's poisonous. And eventually it spreads subtly but easily. And like cancerous cells that, that kind of shape and form slowly over time, but eventually it infects in it the entire soul and, and can eventually just kill you. And so what is this leaven of the Pharisees and, and Herod that Jesus is warning about? He's saying to them, to his disciples, look, that heart of unbelief that's in the Pharisees, don't, don't have that in your own hearts. Don't flirt with that in your own hearts. It's about, it's, it's this idea where Jesus is saying, don't, 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 don't get this, this, this sense of this, this heart posture where you're not trusting in who I am as I present myself. You see, the Pharisees and Herod, they couldn't be any different from each other. But Jesus uses, uses them both as examples. Like the Pharisees were sort of the hardline right-wing conservatives. Herod was sort of this left-wing puppet of Rome. But both of these groups were both poster boys for what would it look like to live in unbelief. And so Jesus gives his disciples this warning metaphor. He says, don't, don't be like them. They couldn't be any different from each other except from the fact that they both had this posture of unbelief. And he says, don't let that posture creep into your heart. And you gotta love how they respond in verse 16. He says, it says, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus is talking about leaven, and they start discussing with one another, like, what is he talking about? We don't have any bread, which is just awesome, because like, if you ever, ever like, want to feel good about yourself, you just read about the disciples, right? <laughs> They've got these thick skulls. They just never get the point. Read on in verse 17 with me, though. It says, Jesus, aware of this, aware of this, this side conversation they're having, he says to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened like the Pharisees? Verse 18, having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. Verse 20, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven, and Jesus said to them, do you not yet understand? So here's what Jesus is saying. He's quoting here the Old Testament when he says, you have eyes, but you don't see, and ears, but you don't hear. That's language that's straight out of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter five, where God rebukes Israel for doubting the power of his goodness. God rebukes Israel. He's like, are you kidding? God in, in Jeremiah, he's like, are you kidding me? Do you remember everything that happened with Moses and the Red Sea? Do you remember how I've delivered you? Do you remember how I've provided for you again and again in the desert? And then God says to them in Jeremiah, do you have eyes but not see and ears but not hear? And so when Jesus quotes that, here in Mark 8 to his disciples, he's telling them, you guys are just like Israel in the wilderness. You've seen miracle after miracle, and yet you still don't believe. You still don't get it. 
I've just fed 9,000 people over the last few weeks, and you're worried about lunch for 12. You see, the same heart problem of unbelief in the Pharisees, he's saying to the disciples, is also in you. It's also in you. And so when we read that, you see, when Jesus says, you have eyes but do not see, let that be a challenge to us as followers of Jesus. When he says, you have eyes but do not see, let that be an invitation to truly open your eyes and see how God is at work in your life. Ask God to open your eyes to, to, to show you how he's at work in your life, around your life, and in our world. I mean, we are swimming in the majesty of our God. But we are too blind to see it because all we focus on is where we can't see him at work. All we focus on is, like the disciples, I have no bread. We want to see God in the miracles. We demand a sign, but maybe we just need to look around and see God in the plane in the ordinary, and in the mundane. We need to pray prayers like, God, will you just show me how you're at work in and in, in around me? And when Jesus says, you have ears but don't hear, let that also be an invitation to us that to, to, to sort of slow down and to, and to hear the voice of God in his word, to talk to him in prayer. Like, if I don't hear God, it's not because God is silent, but because life is noisy, and I don't create space to hear from him. That's why we have these rhythms in our liturgy of, of, of confession and assurance and, and giving. We create space to rehearse how the gospel applies to our hearts. We have everything else begging for our attention, like everything else begs for our attention, our phones, our Instagram feeds, our kids, our social calendars, and all those, those things in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad, but it gets bad if in the midst of it all, we just don't hear the voice of God. We don't press into his voice in the scriptures. And so we need to pray prayers like, God, would you teach me the disciplines of silence, of solitude? of creating space to, to hear you speak to me to, or to just be. You see, God, what he's after, with the, what Jesus is after with his disciples, and what he's after with us is, is intimacy, is relationship. He wants to speak to us. He wants to be able to speak and have us hear. He wants us to spend time with him. My daughter Geneva is doing like her, her cutest thing right now. Um, which it seems like when you have a, a three-year-old, like every, every, everything becomes like the new cute thing, right? Uh, but right now, her, her new thing is, is at the end of the day, she says, hey, Dad, before, we, uh, b b before you put me to, 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 to bed, let's have a chat. I'm like, all right, we'll, we'll have a chat. And she comes like, all right, let's, let's go to the, let's go to, she calls it the chatting bus. I don't know where that comes from, but she says, let's sit in the chatting bus, which is basically our staircase. So she says, let's sit on the chatting bus. And then, we sit down next to her, and then she crosses her legs, puts her hands on her legs, and she goes, so, how's your day? <laughs> how's it going? Uh, she, she literally asked me one time, she's like, how's it going at home? <laughs> I don't know where she picked up on that, uh, but it's like the cutest thing, and I, and, I, and I love that. I love this invitation from her that, Dad, do you want to just chat? Create space to just hang with me. 
The Lord says, you have ears, but don't hear. He wants to speak to us. He wants to be intimately in relationship with us. He wants to spend time with us. Are we creating time to spend with him, space to spend with him? And when Jesus says to them in verse 18, when he says to them, do you not remember? Let that be an invitation for us today to to rehearse and to remember God's grace in Jesus Christ. To remember that nothing satisfies our souls more than Jesus himself. You see, when we are driven by the idols, by the functional saviors of power, of success, of comfort, of food, of drink, of sex, when we're driven primarily by those things, when we divert our eyes from God, when we're driven by these things, and what we're doing is we're diverting our eyes from the brilliant creator and looking at the dull light of created things. We're being captivated by the dull light of creation and turning our eyes away from the brilliant light of our creator. But we were made to enjoy his transforming power. We were made to marvel at his work and to enjoy the comfort of the Prince of Peace. You see, the scriptures say that Jesus is the bread of life that he satisfies the deepest longing of our souls. And that if we go anywhere else, it's just like eating mud pies when we could be feasting at like Houston Steakhouse. Which brings us now to our third and final point. I want us to consider the hope that only Jesus brings. The hope that Jesus brings. You see, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the savior king. He's the greatest force in the land. People were starting to recognize this this in Mark chapter eight. He's the greatest force in the land. Everyone's talking about him. Everyone came out to hear from him. Yet we see him again and again and again. He's totally misunderstood and alone. This is magnified in Mark chapter eight when you see that his, those closest to him, his disciples, they don't even really know him. And these guys would eventually abandon him. His disciples would eventually abandon him in his last hours of life. We see also in Mark 8 that the ones who were supposed to carry on the tradition of the Old Testament law, the Pharisees, they had now fallen in love with that law, and now they're his enemies. You see, Jesus came to pursue us in love. And the Gospel of John admits he came for his own, yet his own did not receive him. But Jesus came out of compassion. The type of compassion that we read about, that gut-wrenching compassion, is what led him off of his throne to come down for us. He came down to get you out, out of despair, out of loneliness, out of hopelessness, out of sin and death. He knew that no matter how many miracles he did, no matter how many diseases he healed, no matter how many stomachs he filled, it would not be, ultimately, at the end of the day, it would not be enough. He knew that he would have to eventually go all the way down in order to bring us all the way up. Jesus showed compassion from the depths of his heart for these hungry people. 
I mean, even, even the deep sigh that he let out at the, his, his disappointment with the Pharisees was a type of compassion. He was disappointed that they didn't understand that, 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 he, that they needed him most. And when Jesus pursues them, when Jesus pursues people, when Jesus pursues me, when he pursues you, with this type of compassion, he doesn't care where you've been. He doesn't care what you've done or where you've come from. He just says, I'm coming down, I'm going in, and I'm going to satisfy and free and liberate you. How does he do that? We'll read eventually in the Gospel of Mark that he became the ultimate exile so that we could go home to the garden. On the cross, he experienced the pains of hell and judgment. He cried out another deeper sigh when he plunged into the depths of God's judgment, taking our place for our sins so that he could end our hunger and so that he could open our eyes, give us a new spirit with new eyes to see his saving work all around us to warm our hearts with the memory of the cross where we become sons and daughters of God. That is the hope that Jesus brings. Hope that satisfies. Hope that gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and awakens us to the truth and the beauty in God's word so that we will always remember that he is God who came for us. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.